There is evil in the world, and it doesn't need a reason to do evil things. In our enlightened age, we don't like to think about that. We want to pretend that there is no adversary and that all the evil in the world exists within the human heart. Now, there is plenty of evil in the human heart, but there is also an adversary who pushes us to do wrong things. You feel the conflict inside of you more frequently than you allow yourself to admit. Even when you know the right thing to do, well, some of us invent reasons to do the wrong thing because basically we just don't want anyone else to tell us what to do. The story of Moses from the book of Exodus starts with a Pharaoh who just invents a reason to do wrong things to Israel. It's not a response to anything. He just invents a reason to do what he wants to do. This is Exodus 1, verses 8 to 10. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. The first couple words there are important to our understanding. A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. This means that the new king has forgotten that it was Joseph and his family that saved the nation. They have forgotten the good that the Hebrew people did to their country. It was all forgotten. And so there was time to act shrewdly, the words are ascribed to Pharaoh. I mean, after all, what does Israel do to deserve enslavement and punishment? Nada, nothing. The Pharaoh just had a bout of paranoia and decided to take it out on someone. This is a man who's bent on evil bent on exercising power over others, bent on protecting his own power, position, and wealth. In fact, the very actions that he thinks will preserve his position are the ones that will cause him to lose it. But that's later in the story. And so, Pharaoh enslaves the people, puts them to hard labor. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the Hebrews, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. You have to imagine that the Hebrews, living in the land of Goshen, have been peacefully tending their crops and and taking care of their flocks before Pharaoh starts to mess with them. But now, even though they've been operating peacefully, Pharaoh has made them an enemy. They weren't an enemy, but he's enslaved them. He's dealt with them mercilessly, and now they are becoming an enemy. Why is it 
that we humans have this propensity to make anyone who's different than us an enemy. Why, why do we do that? It's not right. It's an evil thing to do. But now that Pharaoh has sown the seeds of division, he has created an enemy where none existed previously. And in order to keep up, now his evil has to take on new forms. Verse 15, the king of Egypt, this is Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiphrah and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Now think about the reasoning of Pharaoh here. He's made an enemy, and so in order to deal with the enemy that he's created, he thinks he can minimize the threat of that enemy by keeping his enemy from developing an army. That seems to be what he's thinking. Don't let the boys live so that they won't grow up to fight. Doesn't he realize that an order like this is exactly the kind of motivation the Israelis need to go to war against him? They weren't planning any war. They weren't planning to defend themselves. They were just taking care of the sheep. And Pharaoh's created this enemy. He's raised the stakes. Now he's threatened the life of their children, more than threatened them, ordered the extermination of half of them. Pharaoh is causing the war to happen by his orders. All this evil is on his shoulders. He has power, he has an army, he has position, and he's using all of it to create a crisis. It seems to me, when I consider how this has come together, that this God of ours loves to work in reversals. He loves to switch things up from what we expect. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, Paul quotes, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Somehow God likes to reverse things on us. He says the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And you remember the song that Mary sings when she's told that she will uh, give birth to a son. Mary says he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. It's this pattern of reversals that God deals with. In the wisdom of Pharaoh, preventing Israel from developing an army seems like pure genius. So apparently, in order for things to come out well, the Hebrews will need equal genius on their side to deal with this shrewd Pharaoh, right? Well, maybe they don't need rocket scientists. Maybe just a couple of God-fearing ladies will do. 
Just a couple of God-fearing ladies. They, they have all that they need to thwart the power, the army, the wisdom of the mighty Pharaoh. Because what does the passage say? Verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answer Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became more numerous because the midwives feared God. He gave them families of their own. I think this is, this is the humor of God revealed. Midwives are not mighty armed warriors. They're not even among the leadership of the tribe of Israel. They're not skillful politicians, but they fear God. They know what is right and they do it regardless of the consequences. As I've been thinking about this passage this week, I've been wondering in my mind, did they know what they would say to Pharaoh from the start of their disobedience? Or did they just know they couldn't obey and prayed that things would work out somehow? I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced they knew at the beginning. I'm sure what they knew was that to disobey Pharaoh was a crime punishable by death. So I think they knew the seriousness of what they were about. So the, do the midwives have a clever answer from the start of their scheme? Is this one of those times where you do the right thing first and the answer comes later? Is this one of those times when the Holy Spirit supplies what you need to say when you have to stand up and give a reason for why you believe and why you're doing what you're doing. Now, the truth of the matter is, even if they had this great answer from the beginning, there's no guarantee that Pharaoh's going to accept the answer. They could still be dying anyway. But they do have an answer. And Pharaoh has to recognize the wisdom of it. These Hebrew women, they're vigorous. They don't need us. We never even get the chance to obey Pharaoh. Well, now Pharaoh's been outsmarted, but he's not finished. And so evil gets ratcheted up to a higher level. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. So Pharaoh's not gonna weaponize his entire nation. Every Egyptian is charged with the task of killing Hebrew boys. If the Hebrews and Egyptians weren't enemies before, they certainly are now. If previously it was only Pharaoh that the Israelis hated, Pharaoh has given the whole nation a reason to hate a whole nation. And the conflict is now huge. 
Pharaoh in his attempt to gain power, to maintain power, to maintain position and wealth, is very comfortable tearing his whole nation apart. That's the sign of evil, right? If you're willing to destroy the nation to maintain your power, that's the sign of evil. God is actively trying to bring peace to his creation. Pharaoh is actively trying to destroy the peace of his nation. And there's going to be a showdown at some point. But we've already talked about the fact that God seems to like these reversals. He seems to have plans that don't quite make sense to us. We're surprised there's a little bit of a chuckle involved in them when we see the work that God's do. Because all that I've said so far is background to the salvation story, right? It's all background to what's going to happen next. And, and you know, at some level, what's about to happen next is predicted. You know, this isn't a complete surprise, or shouldn't be. Because you remember the king who forgot what Joseph had done 400 years previously. Back then, Joseph, when he is ready to die, says to his people, you remember what he says? He says, when I die, bury me here, but when you leave this country, dig up my bones and take them with me. Because I don't want to be buried in Egypt, which is not our home. I want to be buried in Canaan, which is the land promised to us. Because we as a people, we will be going home. There's going to be a time when God acts decisively in history again and pulls us out of Egypt and we get the land that we were promised to our forefathers. So it's all been predicted. We haven't seen a lot of the signs of it recently. The, the, the Israelis may have lost some hope. And this current Pharaoh certainly has positioned himself as an enemy. And we're in a miserable, horrible place right now. But the salvation of God is on the way. It's coming from the most unexpected place. So here, in the middle of this panic, in the middle of this chaos, a young Levite couple marries, and they have a child. Imagine the anxiety of being pregnant during those days. You know, there's no ultrasound to see whether it's a boy or a girl. You don't know what's going to be born. There's the potential that the whole nation of Israel will be against your son if it's a boy. I mean, this is tragic times, frightening times. The baby comes, it's a boy. Mom hides the baby for three months. But you know kids, they grow up, they get bigger, harder to hide, and she can't really let them she knows she can't let him run around outside or crawl out in front of the house or she's got to think of something to do. And, and what's a mother to do in situations like that? How do, you, how do you cope with the fear of that situation? And so the boy's mother makes a basket woven from weeds, literally uses the word an ark for this little contraption waterproofs it, makes it soft on the inside, puts this baby in the basket and floats it out into the Nile to be hidden among the reeds. What was this mother thinking? 
I mean, we don't know her plan. We don't understand too many things. Was, was this baby going to be in the basket just for daytime hours and then she was going to bring him in at night? And aren't there crocodiles in the Nile? And what about winds causing rough waters? Maybe there isn't any big long-term plan. Maybe this is just get through the crisis one day at a time and trust that something will change, something will give, and, and that there will be an opportunity for hope in our future. We don't know what was in Jochebed's mind. That's the mom's name, Jochebed. But we know this. We know she loves her son. We know she fears God. So she is willing to risk Pharaoh's wrath and stand against the evil that Pharaoh is. And from the heavenly side, God must be chuckling again. Because he knows what's going to happen, right? Mighty Pharaoh is going to be brought down by a Hebrew kid who's floating in the basket in the Nile right now. He's in the throne, powerful. This kid's out there in a very precarious situation. And most of us would say without any future at all. I guess there's a sense in which you could say Moses' mom obeys the law. She does throw the son into the Nile. She just adds a little bit of protection. Jochebed was creative, wasn't she? You know how the rest of the story unwinds. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the Nile for a swim. She spies the baby, vulnerable and weak, and she has compassion on the baby she must have gotten that compassion from her mother's side. Miriam, the baby's sister, she's watching everything unfold from the bank of the Nile. And when she sees Pharaoh's daughter approach and retrieve the child, she rushes up and offers help to Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, this takes some guts. It's very possible that Mir Miriam could be considered as a part of the conspiracy not to let these male children die. So she's taking a big risk by boldly running up. And then she conspires her own little plan to go get Jochebed to come and serve as the wet nurse to this baby that Pharaoh's daughter doesn't know is actually Jochebed's baby. And so in the providence of God, in, in the scheme of his reversals, the one who will thwart the power of mighty Pharaoh has been rescued from the Nile by his own daughter, is brought into the palace, is fed and educated and raised and coddled in the throne room of Egypt right under the Pharaoh's nose, and he doesn't even know what's going on. It's a great reversal, isn't it? It's such an interesting salvation story. God uses the resources of the enemy to prepare his chosen instrument. Who would have thought that it would have been Moses God uses to deliver his people? 
not, not his sister, not his mother. I'm pretty confident that Israel has mostly lost hope by the time Moses arrives. But there's a tag to this story that's upsetting. Moses grows up, knows his identity, strolls out of the palace one day and sees an Egyptian overseer mistreating Hebrew laborers. Moses, who has been raised in the palace, coddled, educated, well-fed, sees the injustice done to his own people and is so filled with rage that he goes out and he kills the Egyptian overseer. And the way the story unfolds, in a day or so, other Israelis who have witnessed this confront Moses and say, oh, are you going to deal with us the same way you dealt with that Egyptian who you murdered? And Moses certainly understands immediately the word is out. They know what we've done. And Pharaoh eventually hears the word and seeks to kill Moses. And the problem is this. Moses, who is supposed to be God's salvation, has been raised in Pharaoh's court. And he uses one of Pharaoh's tools, one of Pharaoh's solutions to deal with the problem as he sees it. Killing the overseer of the, of the slaves, that's a Pharaoh type of solution. That's not a God type of solution. And Pharaoh, who has been too much impressed by the court of Pharaoh, Moses has been too much impressed by that court, he has to be sent away for 40 years to get the Pharaoh out of him. Otherwise, he's never going to be humble enough to be used by this God who works in small and humble and seemingly insignificant ways to bring salvation to his people. And so Moses has to learn again. What Moses has to learn is to trust that God has a plan, that he's working, that his resources are adequate, and he will act to save his people. And Moses will have to cooperate with that plan. You remember when God is speaking to Moses, the burning bush, and then calls him to go back to Egypt? Moses is saying things like, Lord, you can't possibly send me. I mean, I don't speak very well. I, I, you get the idea, he's learned humility by then. The idea of killing off Egyptians is gone, and he's at a place now where he can humbly allow God to act for him, rather than Moses being in control. This is what I'm confident of this morning. We are going to need the same kind of trust as well. When we have no options, when we can't see the future before us, when, when times are crazy and we can't see our way ahead, we have to trust in the great I am. It is God who will act for us if we will humble ourselves before him and align ourselves with his will. You might hear as you listen to this story, some type of sub-message that our job is to defy the government. 
That's not what I'm saying. I'm not talking about defying the government. What I'm saying is trust in God and wait for him to act. He will. It may be in a reversal. We don't know what it will be. But if we will humbly open ourselves to the Father, he will bring deliverance from the most unlikely places. I mean, think back for a second. How does the Bethlehem story unfold? Right? Here we have a baby born on a road trip, essentially, in something less than an ideal room with no midwife in attendance, who's going to be sought after by another evil king whose life will be in jeopardy, and he'll have to flee to Egypt. And you're saying the prospects aren't good for Jesus. And yet in the same kind of way, in ways that aren't predictable to human eyes, God delivers his salvation. He shows up. This is what I'm hoping you'll hear this morning. First of all, I'm hoping you hear this. Relax. It doesn't all rely on you. Okay? You don't have to fix the world or even decide how the world should be or how the work should be done. Because God is at work. And he does things in strange and mysterious ways. And he seems to enjoy plans that make it obvious that he's at work and it wasn't us doing the work. I think the more we, we put ourselves forward and, and congratulate ourselves about what we're doing for the kingdom of God, the less useful we are to God because then we're getting the glory instead of him. I confess, I get a little nervous when I hear terms like celebrity preachers or celebrity worship leaders because I'm thinking to myself, if they're all that popular, how did God get glory out of that? I don't, I don't understand how that works together. I'm thinking that what we're supposed to be at, about is humbling ourselves to make sure God gets the glory that he is honored by our humility and are willing to do whatever he calls us to do in obedience so that we can cooperate with his plans. I mean, who would have thought that a child born into an act of ethnic cleansing, hidden in a reed basket, raised right under the nose of the enemy, would be God's first strong plan. Who'd have thought that? When God pulls that off, we know it was him that did it, right? We know he was the one making things happen. And we're not tempted to take any glory for that because God is glorified in this kind of reversal. But don't forget, even though God was the one who was working, even though God was the one who was manipulating events, there were lots of other folks who had a part to play. And that's what perhaps makes the plan even more fragile than it is. I mean, this plan, this plan of Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, it hangs on 
two midwives. It hangs on a basket in gator-infested waters. It hangs on a young girl named Miriam who incidentally is watching her mother's actions very, very carefully. It hangs on Pharaoh being clueless enough to raise his adversary in his very home. Lots of people have to play their parts. Pharaoh's daughter has to play her part if this is going to work. And so, so there is a part for us. There is something that God will have us do to bring his salvation. And when I say bring his salvation, I'm not talking just about bringing Moses to free the people or, or having Jesus live so that he can die and we can have forgiveness of our sins. I'm talking about the part you play in the salvation story of the people in your neighborhood and in your family. There's a salvation story for each of them and we must humbly play our part in those. And hopefully, humbly enough so that when it happens, God receives the glory for the salvation that he has accomplished in the lives of our friends and neighbors. So watch for your part in the salvation story, no matter how small. Be ready to act to bring about the salvation of God to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family members, you don't know what that part will be, but I'll remind you of what the apostle said. The foolishness of God is stronger than the wisdom of men. So don't be surprised when you see God act. Might not make sense to you, but when God says go and speak and talk, then a couple years ago, I was in a situation uh, where I was speaking routinely to various churches. So I was working at Windsor Hills, which meant that I would regularly go out and preach in churches across the district. And uh, I spoke uh, one morning in college church up in Wollaston, presented a message about going and caring for others, and, and came back a year later and spoke again. And after the second service, a woman walked up to me and she said, do you remember what you preached? Last time you were here? I said, no, I don't. Well, she, she said, let me tell you what happened after that sermon. I was convicted, she said, when you spoke, because I wasn't treating my neighbor very well. A single mom had moved into the house next to us, had a young baby now, and was known in the community of not living a particularly wholesome lifestyle. And I really looked down my nose at her and sort of kept at a distance because the neighborhood gossip wasn't good and I don't want to be tainted by affiliation. And, and after I heard you preach, I really felt convicted by my attitude. And so the next week when I saw her going to get her mail, I went over and I talked to her. And then after that, I took her a pie and we began to speak and we became friends. And then she asked me to babysit the baby. And then I realized how much I was loving babysitting this baby. And before I knew it, everything had changed. And it wasn't just that 
we were friends and I was supporting her in the task of raising this child, that baby and that relationship had brought so much joy into my life, I couldn't believe what I was missing. And she was looking forward to the day when she could lead that mom to Christ. And I thought, isn't that just the kind of reversal thing that God wants to do with us? Where he, he wants to take what we see as maybe unpalatable or difficult or unusual and transform situations in ways that not only change the things around us, but, but change us and make us into the kind of people that are useful to him that can bring his kingdom to the places that we are. It's my prayer that we will all find our place in the salvation story of our neighbors and friends. That we will trust him to be at work. That we will recognize it doesn't all rely on us. But if we will listen and act when he calls us, he's in the process of making everything new. That's us. That's who we need to be. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song together as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great story. Thank you for the salvation, the, the new creation that you are always in the process of bringing. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we will be the type of people who can be used in this process, that you can use us to, to bring new life by your Spirit. Uh, in whatever way you can, because we're yours. We're your children, loved by you just because we're your kids. And we pray you would give us a love for all of your children. We pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me while we sing this song in closing? Let it be said of us that the Lord was our passion, that with gladness we bore every cross we were given, that we fought the good fight, that we finished the course, knowing within us the power of the risen Lord. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord
by the grace of God, may you feature prominently in the salvation story of your friends and neighbors. To the glory of God now and forever. Amen.